So let's go ahead and say, hi, welcome back to the Secrets of Story podcast. Hello, America. Welcome to the Secrets of Story podcast. My name is Matt Bird. I'm the author of The Secrets of Story, Innovative Tools for Perfecting Fiction and Captivating Your Readers. This is my co-host. This is my co-host. <laughs> this is my co-host, James Kennedy. James Kennedy, who are you? I'm the author of the YA fantasy, The Order of Oddfish, and I'm also the curator of the 92nd Newberry Film Festival, in which kid filmmakers create short movies that tell the entire stories of Newberry winning books in about 90 seconds. We're gearing up for our 10th year of doing this film festival. All the screenings are probably going to be virtual online screenings. Usually we do the screenings in like 14 cities around the country. Want to find out more about it? It's at 90secondnewberry.com. A lot of people who listen to this podcast like movies. They might even have kids. Uh, it's something you should participate in. The movies are due on January 15th, 2021. Great. Well, that'd be fantastic. It's always a fun film festival. I enjoyed seeing it last year in person, but may not get to see it in person again this year. You're but off that would the be a shame. Bird. You're I'm off, off the hook, the time. but I heartily encourage everybody out there to make a movie. It's a very fun film festival and you'll get to be in some good company. So James, you have invited me here tonight to discuss a topic that you wanted to discuss. You have told me very little about it. All I know are the magic words, holy moment. I know that you want to discuss something called the holy moment. I don't know what it is. Hit me with it. Okay. I'm not sure if I've completely worked this out in my own mind. So maybe you can help me flesh it out. But Happy it seems, to. It seems to touch upon something crucial in storytelling, especially, but in particular, something that is not exterior to the storytelling process, like analyzing uh, something that's already been made and trying to figure out how it works. But it's something about what it's like inside the storytelling process when you're making it and the kind of state of mind you need to put yourself in, which is uh -huh. something that we often clash about, right? Oh, sure. So I'm not religious, but I grew up religious. And I, I realize I think about storytelling in a fundamentally like religious terms, unlike you, yes. right? Unlike so, me, yes. Yeah, like, like back in episode 13, I talked about how the climax of a movie often involves like a, a moment of grace. Usually at the climax, there's a certain moment which the works of the heroes are no longer effective. The hero must instead rely on grace so my latest idea is called the holy moment it's kind of like has a family resemblance to the idea of moment of grace but it's not the same thing it's just as much about like the genesis and process of writing a story like the lived experience of that as it is about the final story that can be analyzed as a separate thing in its own right independent of the storyteller whenever i've had an idea for a story it's usually come as some kind of quick flash like there's an image or a feeling or more accurately, there's an image that is charged with a peculiar feeling. Uh, yeah. And the process of writing the story is the attempt to capture the emotional experience of that image and to express it to one's satisfaction and make it transmittable to others. Okay. I mean, like, so authors often have this initial vision that was their entree into like the work that they make. Uh, for like, for, for instance, C.S. Lewis, everybody's read the Narnia books. He didn't say at the outset, I want to write a seven book series that's an allegory for Christianity that also draws from all my knowledge of classical and medieval adventure stories. Like he had an image in his head of a fawn carrying an umbrella and parcels through a snowy wood. It's this arresting right. image. It doesn't have Aslan in it. It doesn't have any of the kids in it. Uh, it's kind of a character that ultimately is not, it's kind of marginal to the whole story, but it's so emblematic of the books, I think it's like the image that it's an image that's on the cover of *The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe* in the most modern edition now. 
Um, yeah. And I want to talk about that. So like in my okay. first novel, in The Order of Oddfish, I had a lot of false starts and different ideas for the plot. I had various characters floating around. Uh, but it wasn't until I had the image that's in the first chapter of the book. There's a Christmas Eve costume party at the decaying Ruby Palace of a forgotten Hollywood actress in the California desert. It wasn't until I had the flash of that vision that everything came together and it galvanized the story. And I realized how to proceed with the story. Right. And, uh, so in your book, and in a lot of storytelling advice, we kind of analyze books and movies as these inevitable finished works. And we draw our lessons from them, considering them in that way. Because how else could we consider them that we just have to take them as they come? But when you're actually in the heat of creation, you're very alive to the very contingent nature of the art. And sometimes you're making essentially random or arbitrary choices that might have big effects later on. You just have to submit yourself to the flow of it and trust yourself that in the end that you're going to make it all work. And what I find that motivates right. me to get to the end and helps me maintain a con consistent like artistic point of view throughout the writing of the story that can guide me no matter how much the tone changes or the event the you know mundane events of the plot change throughout the writing and revision of the story. It's keeping hold of this holy moment. It's like you get maybe one or maybe a couple of bolts from the divine. And the rest of the storytelling process is trying to find like a rational and understandable scaffolding such that these holy moments can be expressed in a way that feels valid. Okay. So you know Hayao Miyazaki, right? Oh, of course. Yeah. So he, the, the, the guy, Studio Ghibli, um, you know, uh, uh, Nausicaa and uh, Spirited Away and uh, Totoro and all those movies. Um, yeah. He, he has this book, uh, he, which he talks about. His, have you read it? Which he talks about his creative process. Have you ever no, read I'd love to read a book by oh. him. I've never read his book. Well, it's, it's interesting because it's by him, but it's not by him in a way. Because it's great because it's not his foolproof 132-point system for generating stories. But it's not his like, artificially smooth and polished system that he presents to you as one piece. But rather, the book is made of these ephemera, these articles and transcripts of speeches and random notes of his over decades. And by reading through them, you get a much more thorough idea of his creative process and his ideas. Sometimes he expresses it with great optimism and idealism. He's like, the innocence of our movies will burn the world clean. But other times he's like, we're making movies for tired businessmen on planes, nothing more. <laughs> but all throughout, he comes back to this idea of, and this is the name of it, reconfirming your starting points. That's the name of the book, Starting Points. And I find this idea really powerful. It's congruent with what I'm saying. I'm doing this podcast from the home I grew up in, in Michigan. I'm visiting here with my daughter, my wife. And I find every time I come back here, I don't know if you could still go back to the home that you grew up in. Can you? I can, yeah. Okay. No, my parents have been there since I was four. Yeah. So I same here. So I get fired up when I'm home for a writing in a way that no other place makes me. I also become like my 18-year-old self. I become totally obnoxious. Uh, um, and I, I, I'm much more combative. <laughs> that's, I can't even imagine what that's like, James. <laughs> You're a dick. Uh, um, and it, but, it, but because by coming here, I'm reconfirming my starting points. Like the images that I grew up with and I integrated into my imagination's worldview, they're still around me. They're all around here and they're vital. And I can draw upon like stored up energy. Like even when I walk down into the basement where I am right now, where I'm doing this podcast, the smell as I walk down the stairs is the smell of when I'm getting ready to program something. Like I, I programmed all these games growing up and I just think it smells. I'm running down the stairs. My Atari 800 XL is all like warmed up and ready to go. I'm ready to program something. It, it's it's so reconfirming that starting point is very kind of important. 
But so this is the same with the story that you're writing. Even when you're in the nitty gritty of writing and you're dealing with all kinds of rules of craft and logistical plot details, you have to do a gut check every once in a while and reconfirm your starting points and put yourself in the mind of that initial vision. And that hopefully will guide you correctly. That initial vision won't always be completely clear or accessible. You have the initial vision and the writing of the story, this is the point I'm leading up to, is a way of recovering that initial vision and making it real and making it whole. And when I had that thought, I realized that a lot of movies actually formally follow that exact same structure. There's an original in the first scene or first few scenes, there's an original sublime or overwhelming, not always completely understandable, but definitely impressive vision expressed in the first scene or few scenes. And after that vision is clearly expressed to the audience, like a crack becomes manifest in it. We see the flaw in it. And then the story always gets busted down to a very mundane level that couldn't be further from that initial originating holy vision. And then the structure of the rest of the story, like you, Matt, you express it as the solving of a large problem, but I think it could also be expressed as the recovery and the repair and the redemption of that original holy vision. Yeah. I mean, this is more... This I've there are other gurus who talk about this more than I would. I tend to favor a view of storytelling in which the hero is not trying to recover something, in which the hero is trying to create something or build something that they had they did not have at the beginning of the script. But I'm interested in hearing this vision of yours. So your idea is like from the point of view of the hero. And I'm saying this is my vision is from the point of view of the person writing the story. Ah. Uh, just the story itself. Like so, um, okay, here's a classic example, E.T. Uh, we start out with this wordless sequence. These originating visions are frequently wordless. They're pre-verbal, and therefore they're all the more powerful, which the spaceship lands in the night in a Californian suburban forest. The aliens, E.T. guys are waddling around picking up plants, but then the government types show up and they try to catch them. The ship flies away and leaves one alien behind. There's an overpowering emotion, and there's like a primal horror to it, the fear of getting left behind that even a child can understand. Uh, did, I ever mm-hmm. tell, did I ever tell you about getting left behind at school, that story of mine? No. So I remember like it was like in second grade, and they would line you up outside the school for the buses to pick us up. If one day, for some reason, all the buses came, and every bus had a certain number, you know, my bus, like bus like nine or whatever, didn't come. And my whole, everybody who was scheduled for my bus was lined up, and we, the bus never came. I don't know what happened to the bus driver, what happened to the bus. And um, eventually our parents, I think, had to come pick us up or something. But I remember sitting there and just feeling utterly bereft and feeling I was never going to go home. And, right. and, 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 I, and, and I just started weeping. And my teacher said, what's wrong? What's wrong? You're going to get to go home. And I, I didn't believe her. And I said, you don't understand. And I, couldn't, I tried to reach out for any kind of thing that could express to her, some kind of concrete thing that could tell her why be, never going home was was important was horrible to me i was like i'm never going to eat raisin bran again (laughs) (laughs) that's i guess uh that's that's you were already a novelist you were already thinking in terms of sensory writing you know it's like no you don't understand home your home can't be an abstract thing to your character your character has to have a sense of taste or smell that they connect with home you've got to go ahead and have your character say they've never eaten they'll never eat raisin bran again this was (laughs) you were a good self-novelist yeah so uh, so but then what happens after that that first vision we're busted down 
from this, sub- and I think busted down is, is precisely the right way to express this, from the sublime level to this workaday mundane level of a bunch of stinky teenage boys who are playing Dungeons and Dragons, and Elliot is kind of like, like kind of frozen out of it, right? And the entire right. action of the movie, and I'm not saying in a scene-by-scene way that, that like your method about solving the large problem is, but just kind of like, we're thinking the whole thing as a whole is just another gloss to put on it. The entire action of the movie is the effort to get back to that initial vision. E.T. creating the phone home device and all the kids' efforts are to cause a recapitulation of that initial holy vision, the spaceship coming down. But this time the vision is repaired. E.T. is not left behind. He goes up with it. We acknowledge how he has changed and how all the characters who have helped him on his way have changed. Um, right. This first vision, this first image, the holy moment, is something that sums up the whole story or is emblematic of the story. It's something, usually it's more extreme than the rest of the story. Like the, the craziest thing that happens in E.T. is a UFO landing, right? And, um, right? and so it happens just twice at the beginning and at the end. I know we talk about it too much, but I'm just going to go right into it again. In Star Wars, the first thing we see is spaceships having a fight in the sky. It's one of right. the thrilling and Star Warsiest scenes of the whole movie. And after this exalted first scene of space battle, and then the sinister black-suited robot samurai, which is how we saw him when he first showed up, we didn't know anything about Darth Vader, in his white uniform fascist battling these brave humans who do have faces in the stars, we are busted down. We're dragged down to the workaday world of Tatooine. Uh, we're busted down to robots wandering in the desert level. And, and down to farm boy Luke level. And we have to work our way back up to the initial holy vision of space battles again, which we only truly recover at the end when the confrontation of the Death Star is a restatement and a revision of the initial holy vision. It's another space battle, but instead of the, bat, the good guys losing, it's the beginning, the good guys win. Right, um, sure. And, so, and I realized this is like the true meaning of opening credits in any like sitcom, TV show, like especially in the 1980s. Like, you think of the opening, like, family ties. Like, we see all the characters in their ideal states. They're all together in a portrait. And all of them are being fully themselves individually. Um, like, you know, when you see, like, oh, and, you know, Michael J. Fox. That's Alex B. Keaton. We see him in three different poses doing what he does. Um, this is a whole... Ru- zipping. Well, uh, you know, we see him rolling around on his rolly chair between different desks. We don't know he's on speed because <laughs> yeah, exactly. unless we've seen that episode. <laughs> but this is the holy vision that everything the sitcom is about, the family togetherness. And then we get busted down in usually the very first scene to the fractiousness of the family bickering almost immediately. And the rest of the episode is an effort to recover this lost wholeness. Um, Sometimes you can use this in opening credits as a way to kind of remind people of what, like in Avatar or The uh, The Last Airbender or Battlestar Galactica, it reminds us of the background of the story and the stakes of it. Like, but I believe that Aang can save the world, you know, or um, we have to be reminded of the initial holy vision so we don't get kind of bogged down on like what they're doing in the Earthbender city and like the, all like the weird kind of like political machinations that are happening or or like the Cylons were created by man. They evolved. They rebelled. There are many copies and they have a plan. It, it, that like kind of um, so we've, it puts us back in the initial vision so we can ignore, enjoy it. Of course, there was no plan. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we eventually found out there was no plan. So, so how would Jaws work? So Jaws, would the Holy Vision and Jaws be just them partying on the beach before they know there's a shark? Or would it be the shark attack itself? It's both. It's the party disrupted by the shark attack. 
it's almost like a sacrament. It's like, um, you know, a, a young virgin woman is sacrificed to the beast. And that has sufficient eldritch power in our mind. <laughs> so, you know, I can totally understand what you're saying with E.T., with Star Wars. You know, OK, so we begin with the aliens visiting and then we've got to get back. You know, we begin with the aliens visiting in a way that ends up disastrously and then the aliens come back in a way that is successful. We begin with a space battle in the stars that is disastrous and then we sink down far away from that. And then eventually we rise back up to that. And this time it's triumphant. Again, how so with Jaws, explain to me again how this would work with Jaws. Well, I, with Jaws, it's like here's a shark attack in which the shark gets away with it, and at the end, here's a shark attack with the shark dies. Right. Uh, okay. But, but th- th- that said, is the, the depth of this idea is not in that mechanical thing. It's that this is the way the artist feels. Uh, um, the, you have so? this vision, you express it that you, you maybe you try to like put it in some kind of um, abbreviated or encapsulated or pungent way at the beginning. And then you bust it down. And then you just like people doing work a day things and you're working your way up to that vision again. But that is the experience of making a piece of art. You have this vision. Oh, I'm going to make something about shark attacks. Okay. Here's a great shark attack. And then, but you have to go through this heartbreak of doing all these things that aren't about shark attacks, you know? Right. Like even in, Aliens, which starts with Ripley, has been floating through space for you know fifty years or something in, in deep sleep, and then the very first seat of Aliens, and we see like the ship is caught and the, the door is opened, and then something comes in, and at first it looks like one of the aliens. It has this tentacle like right. stuff coming out of it, but then you realize, oh, it's these guys who are salvagers. But you have to, but and they're working class salvagers, right? And right. but and what the, what that first scene does is it kind of make, muddles the differences between like these working class salvagers and the alien and who can you trust and right. that's what the rest of the movie is about. We've got Ripley with these working class marines. Who can she trust? And then there's an alien who's always there. And through shadow and kind of uh, ambiguity, in the very first scene, Cameron. James Cameron is able to get that idea across. Every time right. when the first the camera first comes in, before it scans the whole place looking for Ripley, it feels like it could be an alien. Right. Um, so the, I, I try to like, sometimes you could do it through trickery like that, um, but sometimes it's um, like it, it could be very obvious, like in an Indiana Jones or a James Bond movie. There's always like a ten minute sequence in the beginning, which the archaeologist or the spy is being perfect and awesome, right? And right. They, they have a self-contained adventure, but then something goes wrong at the end of the adventure and they're kind of like left a little bit incomplete at it, right? And then, yes. It, it, so th- that's another way of expressing this. In Rushmore, the Rushmore begins with this dream sequence that Max is having, Max Fisher is having, of him being like, he's in class, the, the, the uh, math teacher puts like an extremely hard math problem on the board and, and he sitting in the back of the room reading the newspaper drinking coffee he's like oh i can do it and he does it perfectly and then he wakes up from that that's his vision that's his holy moment and he spends the rest of the movie trying to get back to that he does at the end he puts on that play um mm-hmm. but but when he puts on the play it's with the support of all the people that he had alienated at, at the beginning of yeah. the movie right uh but he and it's had, at a public school and he is public it's, school right 
Yeah, it's not. But yeah, I think that certainly, yeah, that movie begins with everybody applauding him and then he's brought crashing down to earth. And then, yeah, the movie ends with everybody applauding him and he is not brought crashing down to earth. He's gotten there genuinely. Sure. The opening scene can express the entire worldview of the story, like Blue Velvet, right? Um, you, you've mm-hmm. got, you, you know, the, the, you see this, uh, it, it's so cliche to talk about it, this kind of suburban Americana. And then, you know, we kind of go down and we see the bugs. Right. Um, right. And it's, but it, we still talk about it because it's so powerful. Sometimes it I takes a okay. sledgehammer, you know, of, of obviousness to make a point. Uh, um, well, I mean, I think what we're seeing, what you're talking about all, that, David Lynch does in that movie and that a lot of people do is an actual downward camera movement an actual, you know, I found this when I was writing about believe care invest for the blog is I, I, a phrase I kept using and I don't know what the origin of this phrase is, but as above, so below. And I think that a lot of these movies have this above below moment where you've got the world above and the world below. And, you know, we've talked about in the past, how a movie sort of goes from head to heart, to gut, to groin, and then back up to sort of stomach, and then back to heart, and then back to head, and then sometimes all the way up to spirit where it didn't reach before. Wow, I never heard you say this before, taking that character thing and making it part of like the structure of the temporal structure of the story. So we're we're literally moving through the body over the course of the script. We're moving from the hero starts off in his head, as very much the Rushmore character is, and then we're plunged, is then ripped out of his head, has heart trouble, has trouble in his soul, often has physical danger, trouble in the gut, and then often has actual, gets down to the subconscious, the sexual self, the id, trouble in the groin, and then eventually has to work his way back up through the body, get to the point where he can be back into his headspace, but now have earned it. He's now built up a foundation by building up his groin, his gut, his heart, and now his head. And then sometimes goes all the way up to the space above his head, the spirit. And we've talked about in previous episodes of this podcast how often at the exact midpoint of the movies, especially the movies we tend to discuss, there is a snake in the basement. There is a, <laughs> there is a snake in the basement in Star Wars. There is a snake in the basement in Raiders of the Lost Ark. There is a snake in the basement in Harry Potter. And in those movies, there are literal snakes in the basement, but often there is a literal or figurative snake in the basement uh just as in fact we all have one in our or i should say just as all male readers do have in their own life and of course most stories center maleness in one way shape or another we've all got a snake in our basement and stories very frequently have a literal snake in the basement and that this is something that happens so this is sort of i think we can sort of tie this into what you're talking about you're talking about often starting in the head this is true of blue velvet where you begin with this beautiful idealized vision of america this idea of small town america and then the camera lowers down and we show the reality of the teeming bugs underneath the grass and that this will often happen it happens much more obviously there but it can happen symbolically in any kind of script you're saying yeah that's part of the holy vision seeing the bugs um but i i also say that like there's a holy vision and then the being busted down is the beginning of the actual story like in the Incredibles, right. we see, like seeing the bugs is not being part of busted down that I'm saying. Like in the Incredibles, okay. we see um, Mr. Incredible in his glory days. And then mm-hmm. we see him busted down to being an insurance company office drone. And the rest of the movie is him working back up to being a hero again. In the beginning of Blue Velvet, it's 
the, we, the whole vision is like we see small town America, we see the bugs, and then we, the, then we see the kid who's coming home from college and that's being busted down. And originally, right. in the original script, we saw him leaving college. And, and well, it's like, interesting. Leaving with, his girlfriend. That's right. And and he was already having voyeur problems. He was he was engaging in voyeur. He was acting as a voyeur in college. And it was very much like, here, we are going to establish the hero and his problem right away. He is uh-huh. going to be spying on, spying on a sexual encounter in college when we first meet him. And then eventually that all went away. But, you know, it's interesting with Blue Velvet. You know, you begin in the clouds. You begin literally like head in the clouds, and then he has an actual. The father has a heart attack, mm-hmm. and so this is quite a literal example of being head and then being brought down to heart, and then the heart fails, and that brings you down to gut, and mm-hmm. then you're stuck in life and death. Or you're stuck in uh, the guts of the situation, and so it is. Yeah, that it is very much literally what we're talking. What I was just talking about. And I think the, the point that I want to make is that not just that this is something that exists formally sometimes, this UFO at the beginning, this UFO at the end, but this is the journey of the artist. You have the vision, and then you have to get into these kind of, you get busted down into, okay, how does this scene work? How does that scene work? What are these kind of very practical realities of, of making this story happen, whether it's making a movie or, or writing a novel? And, and then you kind of, find a way through that to reachieve the initial vision and then repair it. And sometimes you don't get back up to the level you were at the beginning. So if you look at a movie like The Fugitive, you know, he's happy. He's in love with his wife. He's a rich, successful guy. And they originally were going to have a love interest for him in the Julianne Moore character in the hospital. And which is why that would have been a huge mistake. So, you know, that movie does not get him back up to the point where, you know, he hasn't even, you know, had his name cleared. He has not, you know, certainly reachieved his life in society. He hasn't achieved love or success, but it's, you know, he's still, that movie ends just as he's, you know, reached his trough and is now on the upswing. He is now looks like he is on his way to doing that. But sometimes you get movies in which I think usually in movies, maybe you start off at an eight and then you get punched down to a zero and then you end up at a nine mm-hmm. in the end. You end up uh, you end up higher than that. But sometimes, but it, it can vary quite a bit. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing, the, the funny thing is, though, about The Fugitive, I've watched just independently for no reason the ending of that movie on YouTube more than I've watched the ending of many other movies. And I don't know why. I think it's because, and I think I've said this before, it's a love story between... Richard Kimball and Detective Gerard, and they really appreciate themselves that morning. Gerard is acting like a doctor. Uh, Kimball has proved himself to be a good detective. Um, and they, they appreciate each other, and they're driving off together. And so, something, two things that seemed irreconcilable are driving off together reconciled. That's enough. It's not just. Oh, so you're it, saying that you're saying he does find love. You're saying that he yeah. begins in love with his wife, and then in the end, he finds he finds love <laughs> with Gerard. No, not not quite so simple. I just mean because it's not about Kimball is a problem. It's about Kimball and Gerard. The, Gerard is a is just as much a protagonist of this movie as Kimball is. So we see a scene with just Kimball in it. We're rooting for Kimball. We see a movie with we see a scene with just Gerard. We're rooting for Gerard. We see them both in the same scene. We have this wonderful confusion of rooting yeah. for them both and rooting for neither of them. And then at the end, when they are reconciled, that is 
the uh, overwhelming moment, um, and also the fact that they're so gruff, neither of them can kind of admit to the appreciation they have for each other, and then it drives away. It's a perfect ending um, in which everybody keeps their dignity and nobody has to hug. Yes, <laughs> it's uh, we end the movie with Kimbo saying to Gerard, I thought you said you didn't care. And then Gerard says, I don't. And then he smiles and he says, don't tell anybody. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, I'm going through my movies that I tend to write about. I'm not saying that every movie does this. I'm sorry. You know, yeah. So this is something where it is a, as with so many things you talk about here on the blog, it is tools, not rules. These are things you can do. You know, so, I mean, so. I think Get Out is emblematic of a lot of horror movies. You begin with the opening kill. You begin with them yeah. grabbing Latif Stansfield off the street. And then you cut to Chris looking at his own photography in his own apartment. He is shaving. And then his girlfriend comes by and he is seemingly blissful with his girlfriend. Of course, the movie ends with he kills his girlfriend. He is rescued by his friend. Something very how powerful wouldn't... about the how... fact that we don't see the main character, Chris, with his TSA friend in the same room, like physically together until the end. We only right. see them on the phone together up until that point. So it's kind of like a alchemic kind of coming back together, the things that should come back together at the end of it. If you see somebody on the phone with somebody all the way throughout a movie, and you know that they're very intimate with each other, then when you see them actually in the same room at the end, that's very powerful, right? Oh, yeah. So would Get Out have a holy moment? I mean, only in the sense of, at the beginning, the white people get away with kidnapping and brainwashing a black person. At the end, they don't get away with it. I yeah, I mean, I Jordan, guess I can't speak for Jordan Peele, but he's a student of horror movies. He knows yeah, I a mean, lot about them. He knows how they work, and he knows that this is a trope, right? I mean, I guess we are beginning with Get Out with Race War in the Streets. We're beginning with Race War in the Streets where white people in a scene reminiscent of Trayvon Martin, you've got this black person in a white suburb who is feeling very unsafe. And then sure enough, a car pulls up and a white man in a suit of armor comes out and cocks him on the head and kidnaps him. Mm -hmm. So we begin with this vision of Race War in the suburban streets echoing this tragic real American event. And then you end with Race War in the suburban streets except for this time, the good guys win and you have a reversal of the original thing. But yeah, I mean, I guess you could say that when Lakeith Stansfield is taken from the streets, that is an emblematic moment, an emblematic, it's a moment of real life national pain. It's a moment that does sort of summarize the whole movie in a negative way, summarizes the whole movie. Like you were saying with Star Wars, we begin with a bad Star War and then we end with a good Star War. We begin with a bad alien visit in ET. We end with a good alien visit in ET. And, you know, but the very beginning is an often an echo of the ending. The beginning is an echo of the ending. And that's certainly true in Get Out. You've got race war in the streets in the both beginning, the first scene and the last scene. Yeah. So maybe I think though, the, like when I say holy, that sounds too good. Like it's, it does. But like I, I want to say sublime, but I mean that in the Kantian sense of like, when you come into contact with something that is so much huger than you, that you know that it could annihilate you and you're kind of entranced by its beauty, kind of beyond beauty, a sublime thing, right? Because it's just so huge, it could annihilate you, right? Like, right. I mean, have you read Kant? Like, do you know what I'm talking about? Like no, I, I never, I, no, I took intro to philosophy. I may have read, I may have read a, uh, a few, tried to read a few pages of Kant and given up. 
But, well, I, uh, I might be misinterpreting yeah. him, but Kant on the sublime, it's like, it's not beautiful. Right. It's not good. It's you, you're coming into contact that is something so far beyond you. It's something that like, if you were annihilated, it wouldn't matter that it puts you into this kind of state of awe or like the state of the, you know, uh, uh, sensing the sublime. And that, that is a something that uh, is, that's what art is for, right? Uh, right. um, we want to be brought into contact with these fundamental uh, things that are larger than us, these kind of gods or elemental forces. And um, I, I guess that is what the beginning of Get Out does do, right? Sublime right. in that sense. Right. And in terms of like literal forces, you had this supreme moment of powerlessness where obviously every black person had this supreme moment of powerlessness with the death of Trayvon Martin. But a lot of white people who were hoping that race relations had progressed beyond that felt the same powerlessness, maybe because they were good people or maybe just because they want America to be a happy, non-race war, non-violent place. And even if it meant that we didn't really have to worry about the suffering of other people, but suddenly we did have to worry about the suffering of other people because this was there was this horrific death. And you've got an attempt to grapple with that, with the power of that moment, with the sublime power of that moment, with right. the overwhelming power of that moment. Maybe and, overwhelming is a better word or crushing or or like uh, uh, stunning or uh, shattering. <laughs> I don't know, but sublime is, has a technical meaning in philosophy. That yeah, no, I, I, I'm vaguely aware of the term sublime, and I feel like this is the sublime moment. Maybe a good, maybe a good word for this. So I'm looking at the, I'm looking at my movies. I'm looking at Casablanca. Casablanca begins with everybody on the streets is already very, very grubby. The most grubby moments of those movie are the opening moments of those movie with the various people sort of double crossing each other in the streets. But then the plane takes off. Mm-hmm. And everybody sees the plane to Lisbon take off from Casablanca. And literally everybody, I think that another thing that tends to happen in some of the examples you're talking about is people raising their eyes, sort of the Spielberg stare. And everybody gets very much the Spielberg stare when the plane takes off from Lisbon. And that everybody wishes they were on it. Everybody wishes they could get on that plane. And we're set up, of course, for this ending in which our hero will get on that plane with the girl and take off. And it sets us up for this tremendously powerful ending in which the hero decides not to get on the plane with the girl. Mm-hmm. But we were set up to expect the movie to end with the plane taking off, with getting the plane taking off. Well, there's another moment that is probably about the one quarter moment in the movie when Bogey is talking to Claude Rains and then the plane takes off overhead again. And he very much looks up with sort of a Spielberg stare and looks up at the plane taking off ahead of him. And Claude Rains guesses, oh, you wish you were on it. Mm-hmm. But then you're all building up to this tremendously powerful moment, which I think is another variation of what you're talking about, which is the ironic ending, the ending in which the thing that we have been conditioned to expect as the ultimate happy ending, as the ultimate positive ending, is forsworn by the hero mm. and is not done. Yeah. Uh, it, it, that might be the most powerful ending of all, like the kind of d- the denial of the sublime. Uh, the yes. walking away of the sublime looking through your charts what what else would yeah well it's interesting with groundhog day you begin with this green screen moment so once again i guess groundhog day is similar because it begins with looking at the clouds and so once mm-hmm. again we're in the clouds we're in the head he has this idea that he is going to get a job in a big city and he's going to get out of there and he's mocking his coworkers. Well, it's interesting. Yeah, because you begin in that movie with he is seemingly standing. He is seemingly in the clouds. He is seemingly standing in the crowds. But then we see he's actually standing in front of a green screen projecting clouds. 
And that is very much a brought down from the clouds moment, uh-huh. like in Blue Velvet, like in lots of other things, like in Rushmore in its own way, a brought crushingly down to earth moment literally happens in the opening seconds of Groundhog Day. And and it begins with him saying, if I could be anywhere on earth, I would want to be in this city right now because they're having a beautiful day. And then he reveals that what he actually wants more than anything is to be in a big city, hosting a big city news program. And then, of course, the very end of the movie is he is in the small town that he is regarded as hell on earth for most of the movie. And he decides, let's stay here. And he answers the question that he was asking in the first shot of the movie, if I could be anywhere on earth, where would I want to be? And the answer is the place that he least wanted to be until very recently. So that's very much an ironic ending. You know, he spent the entire movie trying to escape, coming up with a thousand brilliant or or hapless plans to escape from this place and then realizes in the end, the only way to escape from it is to not want to escape, is to not want to leave. Yeah. It's a beautiful ending, but it is very much a matter of that is very much a movie in which you start off with actual clowns you have him brought crashingly down to earth you have him stuck in this place he first tries to wrap his head around the idea of why he's there then he tries to find love with rita mm-hmm. then when rita rejects him so he tries to satisfy his head then he tries to satisfy his heart then he tries to satisfy his gut well he then tries to kill himself he tries to kill himself over and over again and then eventually he rises back up through everything. He gets to the point where he, in that case, very much achieves spiritual perfection. He realizes the only solution is not, yes, he does wind up winning Rita over, but he doesn't care. He is at that point concerned with strictly spiritual matters. And he is concerned with becoming a better person, making the world a better place, making himself a better person, learning to play the piano, and making everybody in town happier in various ways. And he has risen from head to heart to gut to groin back all the way up, and in this case, to spirit. Yeah, yes. I think we've sort of taken the holy moment, which maybe should be called the sublime moment. Right. You know, it's funny. The all, the least popular episode of this podcast of all time, according to our stats, is the moment of grace. And I've always assumed it was the title. <laughs> all of our episodes do well. All of our episodes have a lot of lessons. But just slightly, obviously, there's always going to be one episode that people have downloaded that at least. That really sucks because that is <laughs> maybe our best episode. I It is a good one, Ed, but it's the one people have downloaded the least. And I can only assume it's because of the title that people are like, moment of grace. What? Come on. I'm a, I'm a hip 2020 American and I don't believe in moments of grace. I'm not going to download that one. That's my, only, that's my only thought. So if we call this episode The Holy Moment, we're once again going to have a lost leader on our hands here. Uh-huh. We're once again going to have an episode that not a lot of people do. But maybe it should be the sublime moment. Maybe it should be the overwhelming moment. The sublime image, maybe? The or... sublime image. I feel like that's more what we're getting at. This idea of you very frequently begin with a sublime image. You begin with, I mean, I would say in Jaws, it's not the shark attack. I would say in Jaws, it's the party on the beach. I would say that you no, watch that movie. No, there's something sublime about beauty being destroyed by monstrousness. That is sublime. That is when you are brought into contact with the, the giant thing that does not care whether you live or die. But but I mean, but I would say that that moment is you know literally being pulled down to the stomach. So many of these things we talk about, like oh, then there is a moment where they are pulled down to the level no, of no, that's mechanical idea of of, of like w- w- in which you're you're taking your your uh, your system in and kind of setting on top of something mechanically. 
I feel there, the, there, the, the um, moment in which you, she realizes when you look, look in her eyes, the moment when she feels herself tugged, and you see the look in her eyes, that yeah. is sublime. Like, and I okay, and that's interesting. In the sense of like, some things can simply take you, without because there's simply nature. There, there's, there's nothing that can be done about it. You, there are some things that are so much more powerful than you that once they choose you, it's over. Um, that is like we, we, we live our lives. We construct these kind of systems or kind of lies around ourselves, which we think that we have control over our lives, that we can do things, so we can be carefree. But then every once in a while you come, you brush up against like the brute realities of the fact that the, you could die at any moment. And it relies on just kind of like purely physical things or things outside your control that could simply fuck you up. And that is a sublime moment. And I say sublime in the Kantian sense of like you are overwhelmed by your powerlessness in the face of something greater than you. Yeah. And that is and not a party on the beach. That is being eaten by a shark. Okay. So you would say that the sublime moment is is getting eaten by a shark. There's something sublime. No, it's about it's that. a whole first scene. It's a the whole first scene. It's a yeah. whole first ten minutes. You it, it, the thing is these things often have the Dan Harmon structure of like a hero in a, in a moment of uh, uh, they're in a, a zone of comfort. They, 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 if something's wrong, they leave it, they go, they adapt to a new world, they get what they want. They, they pay a heavy price and then, and then and something happens and, and they go to a new equilibrium. Like these first 10 minutes, whether it's Indiana Jones or uh, um, uh, like all these other things we've talked about, they do follow this structure. The sublime moment itself might have this Dan Harmon structure, but in miniature, it's like the whole DNA of the story is packed into this first 10 minutes. Uh, and then we see it played out in a longer way over the rest of the movie, but it has a different ending. I mean, because it's good for the aliens. You would think aliens would begin with an attack on the new colonists by the aliens. In it the movie. originally and then, did. I'm sure it did. You would think it would, but you're you know because then it would be that would be what you would expect it would be like okay here's colonists they're living on a place oh no the aliens are attacking who can save them up oh, here comes ripley she's awoken she is eventually going to go and save them instead you begin there's no aliens in that movie for a long time and choice. but but you're saying that he found a way by making the people who wake her up seem alien to us and to her that then that he was able to do it on a much subtler level well, to begin couple, that movie. And she also, when she's in the hospital, she has a dream that an alien yes. is about to burst out of her belly. So the alien yeah. has ways of showing up a couple times. And we, when we first meet Burke, we immediately, or at least I immediately knew the the Paul Reiser character that he was bad news. Oh yeah. Um, and, and so like that, like that you, and then then she has a meeting with all the businessmen. They've been calling this there for thirty years. We call them our shake and bake colonies. You you know that everything is in the wrong hands, um, and so you have this kind of slipping, slipping, slipping feeling of things are getting worse and worse. That, that starts the holy vision of Ripley alone being caught up by a, she's in hypersleep and she's caught by a, a a salvager. It ends with her going back into hypersleep, but she's not alone. She's got Newt who she saved. She's got Hudson or Hicks. I forget which one. Um, Hicks. Hicks. Uh, um, and, and Hicks, who is kind of like 
uh, seems to be slightly a romantic thing. And she's got the robot, or half of him, which it symbolizes that she's gotten over her fear or hatred of robots. And they're putting them all away. She's got them all integrated. And, of course, Alien 3 ruins all that. <laughs> Alien 3 ruins everything. And that's why and there are only two Alien movies. Alien there are only... The, the, and Prometheus. Alien, oh, Aliens, what? and what? Prometheus. What? <laughs> what? What? I've never seen Prometheus. I've heard it's one of the worst movies ever made. I've never seen it. I just wanted to get a reaction out of you, and I did. Can, can I say something? <laughs> uh, um, What's when, that? Whenever I'm in Troy uh, and I'm driving down a certain street, whenever Heather and I are driving down a certain street, we remember what happened. We were driving to see Prometheus. We put our girls with um, my parents. We said, we got to see Prometheus. Oh, my God. Ridley Scott is back on the Alien game. <laughs> this is going to be great. We go, and as we're driving to the theater, a meteor <laughs> flew past us and ripped open the sky. It was incredible. A meteor so close. If we had stopped and went and looked around, I'm sure we could find a smoking rock somewhere. It was incredible. We drove, we, we came into the parking lot of the theater, the Rochester Hills E-Magine. Everybody was in the parking lot talking about that meteor. We're like, oh my God, did you see it? I saw it. Did you see it? I saw it. Oh my God, that was incredible. We all went in to see Prometheus. <laughs> and then we all walked out and nobody could look at each other. <laughs> all at this moment of great community and clarity about something cosmic. And somehow the science fiction movie destroyed that <laughs> and how bad it was you had you had communed with the stars you yeah. had communed with the stars in real life and then seeing it in a science fiction movie was the opposite of communing with the stars for oh my once God. yeah okay so let's get back i feel like we have contravened your original purpose here because you began with all sort of high flute and talk about how this wasn't going to be another episode where we just talked about whole whole movies and whether or not this concept fits those movies or not. You were going to talk about the writing process and the creative process and how this idea helps you create. And I feel like we've lost track of that because okay. once again, we're just like, okay, how does it apply to the future? How does it apply <laughs> to Star Wars? How does it apply to aliens? We're just doing the same old crap we usually do on this podcast rise us we're in our heads james but i want you to to pull us down to the gut and then raise us up to the level of spirit to do something sublime here james okay. let's get us let's let's try to figure out how this can actually help people write let me put it this way when we have a creative idea or at least when i have a creative idea let's say we we're bold over at first we can kind of see it all at once in an intoxicating flash right like, like right. J.K. Rowling is on the train. She's looking out the window. She's like, wizard school, right? That's a right. good story for her. But then we have to undertake, as the artist, the hard work of instantiating that vision, of making it real. And as you're creating the work of art that your vision inspired, there's a danger that you might actually lose sight of that initial vision. Or maybe it's inevitable that you do, at least temporarily. You get caught up in the technical considerations of plot, or emotional paradoxes of character or whatnot. And that first intoxicating idea that moves you to write in the first place is obscured. Um, and what I'm trying to say is that I'm trying to encourage people. I, I think my point is kind of by its very nature antinomian. I can't recommend you at this point a system for making things work because it's like my very point is like unsystematic. I'm just saying hopefully you don't lose access to that initial holy vision. Because what you're trying to do is to make something that fulfills that early promise, 
that was only in your mind at first. And the dramatic action of the story, I think, sometimes recapitulates the journey of the artist to recover and express the feeling of the sublime moment. Right. So you, you as a writer, are to a certain extent going on the same journey as your characters. You are trying to reachieve a sublime moment, but do it. You're trying to, to redeem it. Redeem it. You're trying to redeem a sublime moment. See, that's yeah. that's a good word. I think that we've come up with now. You have started off with a vision, and you are trying to redeem that vision. And likewise, your characters are trying to redeem themselves. And I think the number one piece of advice you're giving here is often you want a first scene that is a flip side of the finale. A first scene, it can be quite literally in terms of, you know, they lose a star battle in the first scene, they win one in the last scene. It can be merely in terms of the feeling, in terms of aliens, like it feels like an alien vision in the first scene, even though it's not. Or it can be, it can well, no, be something. In aliens, it was kind of like, but it's, we see they're in the exact same room in a way. They're going into hypersleep. Right. The, um, so even though, yeah, it does feel like an alien invasion, but at the end, they're still going into those pods, you know? But instead of being alone, she's with many. She's right. with the friends right. she made along the way. So you are trying to achieve the sublime, but I think that the most news you can use here is is first scenes. Have a first scene. You know, I think Get Out even though we originally were talking about Cut Out as maybe something that didn't fit, I think Cut Out may be the best example we've talked about in terms of this script very much came out of Jordan Peele's anger about Trayvon Martin. And this is, he's like, all right, let's go ahead and confront that right away. Let's begin right now with the scene that is overwhelmingly informed by that, is going to dredge up all those emotions for the audience, is going to in inevitably recall that. And I'm going to go ahead and focus my anger with this first scene. I'm going to focus the audience's attention on this, but show the negative version, show the version that is similar to the fate of Trayvon Martin, and then reverse it at the end. Have Trayvon Martin at the end get a shotgun and start blowing away the people who have attempted to grab him. Well, we could go on and on talking about Star Wars and Vietnam and we could talk about all kinds of stuff, but, but we'll avoid that. But I think that I think we've got a very raw idea here. We've got a very unformed idea. I think we're we're hashing it out as we go. I as always, I strongly encourage people to go to secretsofstory.com and click on the Secrets of Story podcast in the sidebar. And hopefully we'll have we'll continue this. I'm imagining tomorrow morning we're gonna wake up and we're each gonna go like, oh, I should have talked about this. So we're gonna we'll continue that on the website. More importantly, we'll encourage you, the listener, the American or un-American listener to go ahead and contribute your own ideas to this, because I feel like this is a very raw idea that we're developing, and I feel like it's a good one. Oh, thank you. Okay. So, but no, I feel like we've got a good episode here. I feel like it's sort of unformed and blobby, but uh, well, no, but fine. That, we no, those are the good episodes, right? Like, we want, to, we want to try to bring out something that is inchoate, you know, because if something is fully formed, then you know that it's false. Maybe half coit in the future. Let's, you know, let's maybe go for three quarters coit. Shit, man! I gave you this content for free. And, and this is like quality content, and you're just like, "Oh, it's not quite as coet as I would like." <laughs> no, this is good. This is good. I feel like uh, I feel like we've we're 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 forging new territory. We're blazing a new trail. We're we're cutting a new path. I feel like we're. Uh, this is good. Um, that is what I do. What you do is systematize, and what I do is do like grand inductive leaps 
Grand um, inductive leaps. Can I tell you something about the word inductive? Uh, yeah. That's another word that I've never really understand the meaning of. At one point, I was flipping around TV and back when you used to be able to do that. And I caught a little bit of the show Bones. And I'm like, oh, Bones. This is you know known as being a dumb TV cop formulaic, lame case of the week network show not like the great hbo cable shows that i watch uh, and then there was a scene in which david bornianis is the dumb cop character was sitting on a meeting of the scientists and the scientists were trying to solve this crime based on the evidence they had collected and the emily national character was saying you know i feel like we need to re-examine all this evidence in a different way let's go ahead and have a discussion about the evidence but let's use only inductive reasoning and not deductive reasoning to try to understand this evidence. Okay, so let's go. Let's begin a conversation that way. And then David Borneas kept going as they were saying things. He's like, oh yeah, that's why that's why this happened. And then they would go, nope, sorry, that's deductive reasoning. We're only using inductive reasoning for this discussion. And then he was like, oh, I guess I'm stupid. I'm too stupid to figure out the difference and too stupid to figure out what's going on in this scene. And then they were running rings around him and they were figuring out the case. And I was watching that scene and I'm like, okay, I have never understood the difference between inductive and deductive reasoning. So I am literally David Bordianis in this scene. <laughs> and now I, who think of myself as too good and too smart and too clever for TV case of the week cop shows, network case of the week cop shows, am too stupid to watch Bones. And I feel, I feel like such a dunce right now. And I never went back. I never watch another episode of Bones because I'm like, I'm like, Bones... I pretend that I'm going to keep pretending that I'm too smart for you, but really you're too smart for me, Bones, because I don't understand the difference between inductive and deductive reasoning. Do you know? And no, I don't. Well, deductive means you're coming from first principles and, and you're trying to take from these laws, you're trying to reason out why things are. And inductive reasoning means you take a bunch of individual cases and from that you build up the laws. Yeah, I've had this explained to me a lot of times. <laughs> Okay, and that just means you don't listen because that was as clear as it could be. You know, what you, but, what you what you say reminds me of the bell jar. Um, in the bell jar, she's going to Smith at the beginning. She's very smart. She's very kind of you know kind of, she's running with like the. It's almost like Rushmore too. And then at a certain point, she gets after her suicide attempts and she fucks up so many times. She gets busted down to going to the community college, and she finds out the community college is much harder than going to Smith. Um, and they, they like actually yes. make her do all this work that is objective. And she's like, she's like, ah! And, and, oh, yeah. And at Smith, she's like, I don't have to read the classics because we've moved beyond them. You yes. know, and then at community college, they're like, no, you actually have to read the classics and grapple with them. And <laughs> in fact, you have not moved beyond them. And in fact, we are still trying to reach up to that level of the, of the classics. And, you know, still trying to reach the sublime moment and recreate the sublime moment that was that Homer once achieved. And, you know, yes, uh, when I read The Bell Jar, I totally sympathized with The Bell Jar. <laughs> yeah, because like I had gone to Columbia Film School where they thought they were too good to grapple with the notion of story. And then I had gotten out of Columbia. I had gotten, had been in a similar situation and I'd gotten out. And then I was like, oh, now I have to grapple with all the stuff that I thought I was too smart to go, have to grapple with when I was at Columbia. And, and in fact, the best film school classes I ever took were at a community college. I went, I took classes at, I went to them before I went to Columbia, I went to the Minneapolis Community and Technical College and took film classes there. And I, and then, you know, I got into 
Columbia. And I'm like, oh, well, you know, sorry, sayonara suckers. Uh, I'm up to the real <laughs> high pollution school now. And the, you know, the people were there like, oh my God, you're going to Columbia film school. Like you're, you're reaching so far beyond us. Well, as soon as I got to Columbia, I realized like these people are morons that they were so much smarter. The teachers, the Bruce Maver, my teacher at Minneapolis Community Technical College was so much smarter than the teachers at Columbia. And then other kids were like, um, they're not explaining lights to us. Like the whole concept of lighting is something that seems to be too far beneath the professors at Columbia. <laughs> and they're not discussing it with us. And I was like, well, actually, the professor I had at Minneapolis Community and Technical College wrote a textbook on film lighting that is used all over the country. And I'm surprised it's not being used here. And they're like, oh, my God, do you have it? Can we borrow it? <laughs> and I was like, yes. And I lent it to the other kids one by one at Columbia. <laughs> and they were like, oh, my God, this book actually talks about how to tell stories with drawing pictures with light, which is the nature of film, as opposed to the idea of film, which is all the, the idea of story, the idea of highfalutin concepts, which is all they wanted to talk about at Columbia. It was very much like the bell jar. Well, James, I think we're about ready to wrap up another episode. We are no longer members of the Indie Film Hustle Podcast Network. You're no longer going to hear a bunch of ads. You're just going to hear our beautiful ending music the way it always should have been heard. We did it. We did it. Have a wonderful, uh, well, of course, the bad part about no longer being part of the network is for a while there, it looked like we were going to be doing an episode a week. We are not doing that, but we are going to try to do episodes more often. Let's do it. I will talk to you soon, James. Bye, Matt. Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Story podcast. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on the Secrets of Story podcast in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. Find out about James's novel, The Order of Oddfish, and more at jameskennedy.com. And hey, if you'd like a free audio copy of that book or my book, sign up for a free trial of Audible at our special landing page, www.audibletrial.com secretsofstory. We get a few bucks and you get a free book. We're on Twitter at Secrets of Story 1 and at I am James Kennedy. Our music is by Haddon Kime. Our logo is by Jessica Friday. See you next time.